Before we officially start our seventh session of this course, um, I want to do just a little bit of recapping about where we've been and add in a small addendum to last week's material. Over these several weeks that we've been gathered together, we have looked at a lighter side of theology and church. We've engaged what I've been calling everyday artifacts of faith or roadside religion, these curious combinations of Christianity and culture that we encounter in anything from billboards and bumper stickers to theme parks and tattoos. Some have probably have seemed strange to you, some might have seemed silly, and some might have surprised you as being soulful or faithful in their articulation of Christianity. Hopefully you've learned something along the way um, about who is responsible for creating these artifacts of, of faith, what motivations and theologies lie behind them, but I also hope you've learned something about how we might begin to articulate a response. What, what, what do we think about what's going on in these artifacts? How does it differ than what we might experience in our own uh, 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 churches or in our own homes? Um, I hope you've learned, too, at some sense, a model of charity in our responses. That is to say, even if, or maybe perhaps especially if, we dislike the form of Christianity we encounter in roadside religion, I hope that we offer some degree of charity or empathy with those who created it. I hope that uh, we have cast some attention to things we might affirm about these strange artifacts of faith, things we might learn from them, uh, and maybe ways uh, that we can draw distinctions between stuff that just is not our taste and stuff that we find theologically problematic. There's a difference to say, that doesn't work for me, and that doesn't work theologically. And we often fail to make that distinction, I find, in Christian circles today. So in either case, I hope that this exploration has helped cultivate some of that awareness of this roadside religion, but also uh, a, a certain sense of how we might begin to offer a charitable but constructive response uh, to said artifacts. Now, here's my addendum to last week where we talked about um, uh, uh, drive-in and drive-through churches. And I just, I felt that some of my examples were a little bit dated. Uh, some of the pictures were from maybe the 80s or 70s or 90s. So I wanted to have hot off the press examples of these, of the, the curious ways that churches are kind of dabbling in culture. And, and, and all of these are really from this week in the news. So maybe you've heard of some of these uh, uh, if you listen to NPR or other such uh, outlets. Um, no doubt you're all familiar with the Sistine Chapel. Yes, we all know what that is. Uh, it's uh, located in Vatican City in Rome. It's the site of the papal conclave, and it's famous for its frescoes from Michelangelo. But this past Saturday, for the first time in its over 500-year history, it was the venue for a rock concert. Yes? That's right, a rock concert. The lead guitarist of the Irish rock band U2, David The Edge Evans, uh, played there on Saturday, April 29th, so just last Saturday, in, in front of 200 doctors and researchers attending a conference. Uh, he was backed by a choir of seven teenage uh, boy Irish singers, and he wore his signature black jeans and beanie cap right there in Sistine Chapel. Now, Lest you despair that this is too sacrilegious, don't worry, uh, the edge was unplugged. It was all acoustic. There was no electric guitars allowed 
in Sistine Chapel. So that's one example of a drive, maybe a drive-in or a movie theater type church experience. Uh, the second, uh, you might have comes from the world of sports. You may have heard that uh, Lester, Lester, how do they say this? It's Lester, Lester, right? There's way too many vowels in there, I think. Lester City Football Club on Monday clinched England's Premier League Championship. Now, for non-soccer fans, Leicester City Foxes are basically the Chicago Cubs of English soccer. Over its 132 year, worse actually, uh, they're like the Chicago Cub farm team of English Premier League soccer. Over its 132 year existence, uh, the Foxes have never won the title, and entering this year, they had a 5,000 to one odds. What that means is, if Lucretia had bet $2 on them winning the Premier League before the season started, she would now have $10,000 as a result. You should have made that bet. Um, in either case, um, after the, they clinched, the Church of England started flying the Leicester City Football Club flag over its magnificent Leicester Cathedral. Now here, the, the picture is small, but you can see that they flew their flag in anticipation and then after their victory at night, they changed the color of their spotlights to match the club's royal blue unis. And that's why here it's uh, lit up in blue. The very Reverend David Monteith, Dean of the Chapel, had said this, this is not a fairy tale, that this is the victory. Uh, it is real and it speaks of the growing confidence of this city. Now watch the theological move he makes here. We see again what the church proclaims. A diverse team working in a diverse community with a common purpose can reshape the world. Huge congratulations to the Foxes. So once again, mergers of church and culture. And then finally, my last addendum. Lest you think that the curious practices are only happening across the pond, uh, just recently, a new reality TV show launched on the Oxygen Network. I'm not sure if you get that one. It's a Christian reality TV show called Rich in Faith. Rich in Faith. I know some of you are following it, but I'm not going to make you raise your hand uh, to indicate who. Uh, uh, it follows the life and ministry of celebrity pastor Rich Wilkerson Jr. and his wife Dawn Cher Wilkerson. In the series premiere, Rich Jr. and his dad, who's also a pastor, have a number of different disagreements, as sons and, and dads sometimes do. But the primary disagreement they have is whether to host their first worship service of their new church in, wait for it, a bar. Now, one can imagine that the, that the uh, Rich Sr. Uh, is opposed to this idea, thinks it's uh, not traditional enough, but Rich Jr. thinks it's a great way to reach out to young people, and spoiler alert, they do it. They host the church in a bar. And I was uh, trolling around on their website, as one does, and uh, I noticed that they actually had a survey. You could actually chime in as an audience. Is it cool to have a church in a bar? And let me just say this. This number right now, this was from this morning, 269 votes. This number right now reads 270. I took the vote. I'm not going to tell you what I voted for, but I will say this. Uh, at the time that I voted, 59% were in favor of the church bar and 41% were not in favor of the church bar. Uh, and again, I'll leave it uh, for your guesses uh, to imagine where I fell on that continuum. So these sorts of drive-in, drive-through movie theater churches are still happening and I think will continue to happen. So listen to the news and watch out along the roadside. Please, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Wesleys did that too. In fact, many of our great hymns uh, were at some level, uh, not all, but many of them were at some level drinking songs. And that's actually one of the themes of this course, that some of this stuff seems stranger than fiction, right? It seems so odd, and yet one of my uh, th- theses along the way has been that some of the stuff that we s- accept in our Christian experience today as incredibly traditional would have seemed equally odd and crazy to the early church. The form of our Bibles, the form of some of our churches, all would have been a, such a curiosity to Paul and the other disciples. Uh, they would have just marveled at it. So we're having this kind of odd experience with roadside religion today, but I wonder, in how many generations will these sorts of things feel traditional and overplayed? And what will replace them? I think in some ways this, this roadside religion kind of presents itself as this contemporary thing, but I think it's been with the church all along. And it's only from, wit, from the uh, vantage point that we're looking at it that, that it seems odd or uh, new in many ways. All right, that's a long, extended introduction. Now let's begin on session seven. Oops, there we go, come back. All right, session seven, the National Lampoon's Christmas, or Christian vacation. It's hard to talk about today's topic, that is American theme parks, without mentioning the 1983 blockbuster comedy National Lampoon's Vacation. Now this time I am gonna make you raise your hand. How many have saw it or remember it? Okay, quite a few. If you actually, uh, it's, it's a common replay on uh, cable TV these days. Uh, so many of you do know it. The National Lampoon's Vacation chronicles the, event, the adventures of the Griswold family as they embark on an epic cross-country journey from Chicago to LA to visit the fictional amusement park called Wally World, which is billed as, quote, America's favorite family fun park. Now, along the way, the dad, Clark, who's played by Chevy Chase, and his wife and two, na- two teenage kids run into a host of gaffes, family bickering, strange relatives, and a number of other potential roadblocks. But undeterred, Clark and the family journey on to Wally World. When they eventually arrive, they find that Wally World has been closed for repairs. And Clark, the dad, as only dads would, is about to lose it because of what he had to go through to bring the family across the country to arrive at Wally World. Uh, so he buys a realistic looking BB gun, I don't recommend this to do at home, and forces a guard, played by then uh, by uh, John Candy, to take them through the park. Now, if you've seen the movie, or even from my little description, or even from the images on the screen, you'll know, you'll know that this is something of a slapstick comedy, and it's a little bit of a, a lowbrow humor at times. But there's also some social commentary here as well, as is the case of most good comedies. Wally World is a thinly veiled parody of Disneyland, this iconic destination place where all your dreams come true, even if it costs an arm and a leg to get there. The movie pokes fun at the notion of the American vacation and how our longing to be together on a family adventure can often produce more bickering and fighting than it does peace and harmony in our families. Now I know, of course, that would not be true of any of our families, but I've heard it said uh, that this can happen. Now, what does the National Lampoon's vacation have to do with roadside religion? Well, across America today, Christians of all varieties are packing themselves into 
cars and embarking on similar journeys to visit similar theme parks. These destination sites have all the markings of a Wally world. There are assortment of attractions and rides and events and performances and paraphernalia to buy. But there's only one major difference. These Christians who are embarking on a national lampoon type vacation aren't visiting normal theme parks. They're visiting theme parks that are based on an attempt to reinforce certain biblical themes. These are Christian theme parks or Bible theme parks, as I'll call them for the sake uh, of our uh, discussion today. Let's look at a couple of these Bible theme parks. Actually, let me ask you first, uh, has anyone ever been to or heard of or seen signs for a Bible or Christian theme park in your journeys? I'm seeing a couple nods. Anything in particular stand out, ones you've heard of? Yes. Recreations. That's a common theme. Life-size Noah Ark. We'll actually, have, there's a new version of that that we'll look at today. Any others that you've come across in your journeys? Yes. That'll be a big topic of our conversation today. Um, let's look at a handful of examples. Now, a few of these we're going to go into more depth on later, but I'm going to give you just a little taste of roadside religion, uh, Christian theme parks to get going. In northern Kentucky, just east of Cincinnati, you'll find the Creation Ma Museum. This state-of-the-art 75,000 square foot museum brings the pages of Bible to life. In a nutshell, in a nutshell, it's a museum that tries to display and curate a literal interpretation of Genesis 1. It is theology uh, writ into what looks like a regular museum. As the website says, there's more to do here than you can fit into a day. The main hall has 160 displays, many of which depict Bible scenes such as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, other special exhibits deal with dinosaurs and dragon legends, and you can have a hands-on archaeological dig experience right there in the museums. There's a special effects theater complete with rumbling seats and rising mists. There's a workshops and there's lectures and there's petting zoo and camel rides and botanical gardens and a zip line and a gift shop and more. Now, I have to say on a personal note that my wife Jamie and I actually visited the Creation Museum, though I have to say on accident. Uh, after we graduated from seminary in 2009, we took a cross-country trip from New Jersey out west and as we were driving along I-275 in the Cincinnati area, we saw a sign for the Creation Museum, and we couldn't imagine what a Creation Museum would be. So we took a short de detour. There is a very young Ryan, uh, pre-gray hair, as you'll notice. Uh, Jamie looks exactly the same, not surprisingly, but I look a lot uh, different now than I did then. Uh, as we pulled into the parking lot for the Creation Museum, we saw no fewer than four dozen tour buses and another dozen or so school buses. This is in addition to the hundreds of cars that packed the parking lot. The lines were long and the admission price was steep, but it was worth it in the end. Let me show you a quick virtual tour of some of the things that you'll find in the Creation Museum. Now this is not video, so I have to scroll you uh, through this, but this is the lobby of the Creation Museum. You'll notice that mostly what you see are dinosaurs and then here in the background, uh, a dragon. I'll explain more why there's a dragon and dinosaurs later. 
So this is not exactly the High Museum or the Carlos Museum, as you might note. There's some, some Brewster's ice cream that you could get along the way. And then down these hallways begin the 160 exhibits. Let me show you one other piece of it, uh, the starting point. Here's an exhibit on a dinosaur. And again, uh, you can, if you can read here, there's kind of a, a, a two columns talking about the human reasons for the dinosaur's extinction and God's word reason for dinosaur's extinction. I'll say more about that. But this is sort of the feel of the, uh, the creation museum. There's stuff about the universe, plants, and animals. It's an extraordinarily well-curated museum. I'm gonna have, like I said, I'm going to have a lot more to say about this in a moment. Um, but that is the Creation Museum. Now let me, let's travel down the road about 40 miles from the Creation Museum, and there you'll find the Ark Encounter. Now this is not maybe the Noah's Ark that, Brian, that you mentioned. Uh, there are other replicas of Noah's Ark, but the Ark Encounter, which is due to open on July 7th of this year, so just a few short months from now, is unique. It is billed as a one-of-a-kind, historically-themed attraction. It offers a life-sized recreation of Noah's Ark, built to biblical specifications, that is 500, uh, excuse me, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. For those of you who don't have your cubit to feet app open at the time, uh, that's 510 feet long, 85 feet high, and 51 feet high. It boasts of being the largest timber frame structure in all of the U.S. Not the lar largest arc, but the largest timber-framed arc in all of the U.S. It's hard to describe what they're actually doing here at the Ark Encounter. So let me show you a short video. Let's get out of this. Excuse me one second. Ah. Okay, we're having some little technical difficulty here. Hmm. Okay. Sorry for the delay there. The music in this video makes me want to go in and of itself. Just wait. Imagine how massive this is.
okay, there's, there's about two more minutes of about the same, so I'm going to cut it here. We'll reconvene. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the, Ark Encounter is set to uh, the Ark Encounter is set to open on July 7th. Uh, tickets are actually on pre-sale. Any guesses of how much a ticket, an adult ticket costs? 40 days, I mean dollars. That's exactly right. So they take the symbolic idea of 40, of the 40 days, and they make it the ticket price. And, and also, I should say that there's free admission for the first 40 days of the Ark being open. This is a $150 million project. Uh, they've already raised $33 million for it. It's privately financed by several organizations and rich uh, business people. It recently actually appeared in the national news. In 2012, they applied for over $37 million of tax incentives through, through the Kentucky Tourism Department program. And there was a great controversy about whether this place should be given uh, such uh, tax uh, breaks. Uh, the supporters say the life-size ARC theme park is for-profit, and it is, and that it will bring in jobs and tourists into the state of Kentucky and thus be a great benefit to the state as a whole. Uh, those on the, uh, on the other side, critics say that the park has religious conversion in mind, and it certainly does, and the state should not be giving uh, money to such organizations um, in, in, in view of separation of uh, church and state. It's a difficult political or uh, legal issue because what needs to be decided is uh, whether or not the primary purpose of the Ark Encounter is conversion. If it is, they shouldn't get the tax breaks, but if it's not, if it's for profit, then they might well be eligible for it. Uh, the courts originally uh, blocked their uh, application for the tax breaks, uh, but recently, very recently, uh, that was overturned and they now have the right to have the, t uh, to have the, uh, the tax incentives. I've, I've put on here a link to a great uh, interview with Anderson Cooper from CNN about this very issue uh, somewhat recently. But for now though, let me move on. Um, there's the Ten Commandments theme park. Uh, some of you will know this because I mentioned it in our previous course on the Ten Commandments. Um, it's another page from the Old Testament. Uh, the field of the uh, field of uh, the fields of the wood Bible Park, just two hours north of Atlanta and just east of Murphy, North Carolina, uh, offers the world's largest Ten Commandments. Uh, I actually took uh, I took I taught a class on the Ten Commandments in, in the spring of 2015 at Columbia Theological Seminary, and at the end of the course, I took my class uh, to this uh, park as part of our course, and we had a wonderful time interacting uh, with what we found there. Uh, as you enter in uh, into a parking lot and a welcome center, sits in a valley between these two uh, steeply sloped grassy hills uh, that stretch up both to, the, both to the east and to the west. And on the western slope of the hill, you'll find the Ten Commandments, written with huge slabs of concrete painted white and formed into the shapes of letters. Uh, they're about five feet tall and four feet wide each, the letters are. In total, the two tablets are the width of a football field. So what you're seeing here is an aerial photo of the world's largest Ten Commandments. Now, for you Ten Commandments scholars out there, and I know there's quite a few of them at this point, uh, what do you notice about their Ten Commandments? Oh, so this is, I think they're, they're quoting Exodus 20. No, but it doesn't have that. If you didn't know the Ten You wouldn't know. That's right. So you would say, well, what, 20 what? Yeah, exactly. Uh, what else do you notice? 
So the Roman numerals, right, so that wouldn't have been in the Moses' tablets. They were not yet created yet, I think. Uh, what do you notice about the content? The way it starts. Okay. The Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is that how it starts, Lisa? No, there's, there's uh, more to the beginning. The pre That's right. As we saw in our, our earlier course on Ten Commandments, there's a very important prologue or preamble uh, that describes God's relationship with Israel and God's faithful acts of salvation on their behalf before this. In fact, many traditions, including the Jewish tradition, actually label that as number one. And this commandment is actually number two. So there might be a question about whether they got the numbering right. Typos on this scale are difficult to deal with. I have not found a whiteout or a greenout, I suppose, uh, that would help address that. Any other thing that you notice about it? Bill. That's right. That's right. There are two tablets, and they both have all ten of the commandments on it. So that's another point. Uh, the other thing, too, this is all really, really, really good. I knew we had ten commandment scholars out there. B Bruce? When they, when they put the letters, I mean, what kind of staggered? Well, you know, it... Yeah, so here, right, there's some, uh, there's a little sloppy here. The penmanship is sloppy at this point. Uh, actually, what happened uh, is that this is, this is now several decades old, and so as the ground settled, the blocks moved uh, quite a bit. So I don't think it was like that originally, but it ends up having this kind of worn look to it. Um, the other thing just to notice real quickly is that, uh, that they're all very abbreviated, right? So this is a synopsis of the Ten Commandments, and one might wonder what difference it would make if you included uh, the additional text. Now, you would need another field, presumably, uh, and that might pose some practical problems. But in either case, uh, we're going to say more about this experience, uh, or, or this, this site as well. There's other Bible attractions there at Fields of the Woods, including a replica of the empty tomb, Jesus's, that is, an outdoor baptismal pool, which I have to say looks like a regular pool, and a prayer of praise monument. It's rated 4.5 out, 4 out of 5 stars on TripAdvisor, in case you're planning um, an excursion. Let me do one last one before we move on. I want to skip that here. Uh, the Holy Land experience, uh, at least you think that these are all Old Testament variety. The Holy Land experience, found in no other place other than Orlando, Florida, offers a Disney World Universal Studios-like experience of what ancient uh, Jerusalem would have been like. So this is one of those recreation varieties of the Bible theme parks. It sits on 15 acres, uh, and it, it, as I said, it attempts to bring ancient Jerusalem to life today. It aims to create, and here I'm quoting from the website, a total sensory experience that is educational, historical, theatrical, inspirational, evangelistic, blending sights, sounds, and tastes that transport guests 7,000 miles away and more than 3,000 years back in time. There you'll find a graphic reenactment of the Passion, recreations of the Temple, the Shofar Auditorium, a massive indoor model of Jerusalem from 66 CE, and of course, a wax museum. Generally, it's more affordable than its down-the-road Disney counterpart, with tickets starting around $50, but there's plenty of ways to spend money once you're inside the Holy Land experience. Uh, there's the Old Scroll Bookstore, the Gold, Frankincense, and Myrrh gift shop, the Jerusalem Street Market. You could eat at Esther's Banquet Hall, which offers a full menu of entrees, or for something lighter, you can try Martha's Kitchen or the Church of All Nations Bistro. 
Basically, if you want it, they have it, all in the Holy Land experience. Now, so much more could be said, and so many other sorts of Bible theme parks could be named, but here I want to begin to get you talking about how you experience these theme parks. I'm going to have a lot to say about a couple of them, but here I want to pose two initial questions for a small TAPS exercise, talking aloud, partner sharing. Uh, This is just a way to kind of gauge your uh, reaction so far. So two questions. What do you like or don't like about these Bible theme parks? Did anything catch your attention, interest you? Were you reviled by anything? Just how how are you feeling about what you saw? Uh, and And any answer is okay here. And then another question, and you could choose to do one or the other or both, Uh, Do you notice any similarities between these four theme parks? So they're all about different things, but do you notice anything they have in common? So turn with a partner or two, and let's take about five minutes to kind of get our juices flowing with these questions, and we'll come back together uh, and begin to put together some of our thoughts.